Our scripture reading today is from Matthew 26, verses 1 through 5, verses 14 through 29. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. And while they were eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on, until that day when I drink it new with you and my Father's kingdom. Amen. Amen. Hi, everybody. Welcome again. Um, Starting today, as you can see, we're doing something new. We're going to be finishing what we started last fall, and that is taking a look at the gospel of Matthew. And I want to finish our time looking at Matthew by focusing in for the next month on the last week of Jesus Christ of Nazareth's life. And here's why. Because the heart of Christianity is not an idea alone, or a fact alone, but a person. A person. The heart of the Christian faith is a person. Christianity arose out of a single human life, which ended in a violent and shocking death, and then resurrection. And therefore, all of this today, and all of that last week and throughout history, it's all meaningless if we can't get to the heart of, of that person's life and death and resurrection. In the opening moment of that final week, something called Palm Sunday, we're actually going to hold for a few weeks from now for a couple reasons. So today, as you can see from the reading, we're picking up the action in a famous moment, something called the Last Supper, which I assume you've seen a painting or two about in your lifetime. And Here, in the Last Supper, Jesus is having his last meal, his final meal on earth, as far as we know, and he's having it on a particular day with particular people 
for a particular reason. So to understand what he's doing here and to get to the heart of who he is as a person, let's ask, try to answer, three questions from the passage. First, let's ask, what is Jesus doing here? What's he doing? Second, how can he do what he's doing? How, where does he get the power for that? And finally, how can we do the same? Let's begin here and ask, number one, what is Jesus doing here? Let's start looking in verse 17. It tells you when this meal is taking place. It says, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, stop. Let's pause and see what we're, what we're doing here. The Jewish people here, the festival of unleavened bread, the Jewish people, this was a holiday for them to commemorate and celebrate their own version of our 4th of July. This was their Independence Day in a way. To celebrate when they were delivered out of slavery in Egypt and there was a, a special meal that all Jews ate on that special day to remember who they were and what God had done for them. And that meal was special and it was even more traditional than what your grandma makes on Thanksgiving, right? Uh, because it was sacred, right? In other words, you had the same meal the same way every year. And that's what's about to happen here, except as we're about to see, Jesus is about to take this whole thing off road and off script and about to do it all wrong in a way. And the first clue that this whole scene's about to veer off course is when Jesus is asked a single question by his disciples. And this is the question. They came to him and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover. Now notice what they ask. They ask, where do you want to eat the Passover? Not, where are we going to eat the Passover? They never assume they are all going to eat it together because, number one, there is no record of them ever eating the Passover together in the past because, number two, Jews never ate the Passover with anyone but their own blood family, their own immediate family. And so when the disciples asked this question, they're simply honoring Jesus as their rabbi. You know, where do you want to eat the meal? We'll prepare it for you, rabbi. And then we're going to go home and eat it with our own kith and kin, as they say in the South, right? But look at what Jesus, thank you, John Archer, for laughing. He's from the South. That's Kentucky, right? But look at what Jesus does next in response. He tells them to go find an acquaintance of his. And he says, man, tell my buddy to get the upper room, this sort of dining room area ready, and tell the man this. He says, tell the man, I am going to celebrate the Passover with my who? My disciples at your house. What's that? Oh, you didn't ever eat the Passover with other people. You only ate it with your family. Can you see what's going on? Jesus is saying to his disciples, you and I are about to do what no one's ever done before. You and I are going to eat the Passover together because I am redefining what family means to me. You and I are going to have this sacred meal together because you and I are a family. You and I are brothers. We are a holy covenant community. And this is incredible. Every Jew in their day would have rubbernecked and snapped their head when they heard this or read this. Because with one sweep of his hand and flick of his wrist, Jesus Christ is redefining their lives, their relationships, who they're, their very identity. And let me show you what I mean. First of all, he's saying, 
I am going to redefine what you think it means to relate to me because he's saying with the sweep of his hand, he's saying, I have the right, disciples, to lead your life, to tell you who you are, who you're going to relate to, and where you're supposed to be. I mean, this is an implicit claim to divinity here because Jesus essentially is messing with and overturning a 1,500-year-old sacred and unchangeable tradition, the very pinnacle of their culture he upends have you today church friends allowed him to say the same thing to you have you allowed him to say to you you don't define who you are i define who you are jesus defines who you are He's saying here, your culture doesn't define you first, right? Your, even your own traditions don't define you first. Even your own feelings, and oh, we've got a lot of those today. Your own feelings don't define you first. Following me, he says, even when it doesn't make sense, comes first. He defines who you are, not you. Have you allowed him to say to you? That he is the Lord of your life. But let's go another step further. Because it doesn't just show us who we are to him. He actually defines who we're supposed to be here as a church to one another. Because who comes to this new family meal? Well, of course, it's all the disciples, including one disciple in particular. The villain of the story, right? The man with the money problem, the bad guy. It's Judas Iscariot. And Matthew, who's the writer of this, he was there that night, and he records this snippet of conversation he catches between Judas and Jesus. And what I want you to see here is through how Jesus converses and relates and responds, how Jesus shows us who we are to one another. He begins this way, verse 21. While they were eating, Jesus said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. Now, let's pause here because I'm not actually suggesting we do this to one another. You know, we don't go into our community groups this week and say, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. You know, who forgot to bring the punch and cookies? No, we don't do that. This is strange dinner conversation, right? Unless you've got a specific purpose in mind, which Jesus does. And the first clue is given when, as you'll notice, he doesn't name his betrayer, by name, he doesn't name Judas. He only says to the group, one of you all, because it's plural in the Greek. What's he doing here? Well, follow me. He said, the disciples begin to re- respond one after the other. Surely you don't mean me, Lord. And what's Jesus' response when they ask him, who is this? Who could do this to you? Who could do this to us? He replies this. It's the one who's dipped his hand in the bowl with me. But again, he doesn't name Judas by name. He's being vague here again because everyone's dipped their hand in the bowl with him. He's had 12 other dudes dip their hands in the bowl with him. That's the point of the meal. And what Jesus is saying, therefore, is this. The one who will betray me is someone who's close to me like family. Someone who's close enough to me to harm me and hurt me. The one who's going to betray me is like my own covenant brother. And this is almost more than Judas can bear. And he blurts out, surely you don't mean me, rabbi. Right, big faker. (sighs) But Jesus answered, you have said so. This is a tricky phrase here. And it means more or less, whatever you say. 
whatever you say, Judas. Again, Jesus, you can see, is not calling him out here because if he were calling it out, the disciples would have reacted differently. They would have, you know, taken a brother outside and introduced him to the broadside of a baseball bat, all right, or their chains or brass knuckles or something or pin him up against the wall for what they did to him and to their rabbi. No, when Judas plays dumb and asks, is it me, Jesus? Jesus says, it's whatever you say, friend, whatever you say, you tell me, Judas. He's saying, I'm giving you one more chance to make it right between us and all your brothers. So what's Jesus doing here with the disciples in general and with Judas in particular? It's this. Jesus Christ is modeling covenant love and faithfulness and friendship all the way to the end of his life. He could have exposed Judas here, humiliated him, could have excluded him, but instead he calls him family. He brings him into a sacred meal with him and gives him every opportunity to make it right. Jesus Christ is being the perfect friend, the perfect teacher, the perfect leader. He's loving his enemy all the way to the end, making himself vulnerable to even the worst person in his life. Oh, it's amazing. It's beautiful. And it's heartbreaking. Jesus Christ is eating his last meal with his worst friend. His last bites of food on planet earth are eaten sprinkled with the poison dripping from his betrayer's lips. That's what he's doing. That's what Jesus is doing in the upper room. He is modeling covenant love, perfect faithfulness, perfect friendship and loyalty all the way to the bottom, to the end of his life. Can we, church, therefore, can we do this for one another? Can we do this for others? Can you do this for for someone even who's hurt you today? Can you do this for someone who you feel like has betrayed you? And of course, the closer the person is to you when you feel like they've betrayed you, the more painful it feels. If you've ever experienced what you felt like was a betrayal, I mean, you know how you process it, right? I mean, first there's the shock of it. There's the anger of it. The no, he didn't just (laughs) kind of a moment. Then there's the pain of it, the how could she, the how could he. Then there's the, the introspection and the guilt, like what's wrong with me? What did I do wrong? Then there's the playing it back. I mean, how did this happen? And then there's finally the choice to either become bitter or to pay the price and let it go. Even though you're the one you feel like has been wronged, or you're the one whose reputation has really been damaged by it, and it seems like, it looks like that person got away with it all. Oof. But Jesus here, he models covenant love, covenant faithfulness, perfect friendship, all the way to the end. That's what he's doing, number one. But let's ask, we've got to ask, how could he do this? How could he be so unlike anyone we've ever seen or met before? Number two, how could he do what he did? Let me try to show you. After this conversation, we see Judas closes his heart 
he ends his time there. He goes ahead with this plan, and Judas gets up and leaves the room to go make a deal with the devil. After Judas leaves, though, but before the meal ends, something else happens. Matthew doesn't record it here, but over in the Gospel of John, John did, another eyewitness participant in the meal. And over in John's Gospel, we see John writes down what Jesus said when Judas left the room. He gives his last unbelievable bit of teaching to his disciples and then he closes it in this prayer and in this prayer he begins to show us to reveal how he was able to give away and model covenant love covenant friendship perfect faithfulness all the way to the end and he begins to pray this is his prayer in john 17 and see if you can catch what jesus drops on us here jesus prays father the hour has come Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. For you've granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What in the world is this? It's amazing. Jesus is saying there is one true God, that you can know him and that knowing God also means knowing Jesus, the son. Oh, what's that tell us? Let's take a closer look. He goes on and says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in what? Us, so that the world may believe you sent me. He prays, may they be, where? In us. In other words, Jesus is saying, hear me, he's saying that God is an us. An us. This is stunning. The one God, the God of the Bible is an us. In the chapter before, Jesus also references one more part of the us, someone called the Holy Spirit. He's saying that God is an us, Father, Son, Spirit. And it took, of course, Christians Quite a while, as you can imagine, to come up for a word for the us. And this is the word we use today to describe what Jesus shows us. It's the word trinity or tri-unity or three in one. And another way of seeing the same truth is over in Matthew 28 where Jesus again tells the disciples to go change the world in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not in the names of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Why? Here's why. Because there is only one God, and God is an us. One God in three persons. In other words, God himself, can you see, is a forever and infinite covenant love relationship. And so to ask the question, how could Jesus model covenant love and friendship all the way to the end, is answered by this statement. Jesus could do it then because it's what he had always done. It's what he was always doing. He can model love even with his worst friend in this moment because he had modeled love from forever in infinite moments. He could model love because God is in us who love one another and love is all that Jesus, God the Son, had ever, ever known. Father, Son, Spirit, the Trinity, God 
isn't us. Loving and forever. And hear me, here's how important this is. There are, as you may know, many things that the Protestant church, Roman Catholic folk, our brothers and sisters in the Greek Orthodox church disagree on. Many things we don't see eye to eye on. But one thing that all Christians have agreed on from the beginning is this, that God is an us. And if you take this away, you begin to twist Christianity. And it's something unrecognizable. Let me show you. Try to show you what I mean. If God is, for example, unipersonal, only one person, you have the God of Islam. If God has no persons, but he still exists somewhere, that's pantheism, where God is the rock and the flower and the tree and your dog. Uh, If God is three separate gods, you've got polytheism, right? Roman, Greek, mythology, Zeus, Hera, etc. If God only appears as the Father at times, but the Son another time, the Spirit at another time, that's that's called modalism, where God's like a transformer. You know, he just kind of goes from one shape to the next, but that's not it. If the Father's really the one in charge, the other two just submit. That's called subordinationism. Oh, but Trinitarianism, Christianity says that God is an us three persons to know who love one another. This is the foundation of all the Bible. And Jesus could love now, in this way, in this moment, at this time, in the upper room, because he had been loved and had given love from all eternity. He was just given away what he'd always had. And let me give you, let me give you three quick implications of what this truth means for you today and for this church as well. First, this first implication is this, that love is more important than success. I'll say it again. It must not, it must not have been clear. Love is more important than success. Here's what I mean. If a triune God has existed from all eternity, then God's never been lonely and did not make us because he was looking for a, you know, a cosmic roommate of sorts, you know, someone in the universe to, you know, to invite over for tea. No, God's always been love and he put love before he ever made anything, before even his creation career in a way and therefore today when a person if you become a workaholic and you put all your meaning into your career or into your work life and you sink your significance into what you do as in, as a, in a, on your job you are going against the grain of reality if you've ever seen the, the movie, it sort of came out recently, La La Land. If you've seen that, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful movie about two people who fall in love. And they've got these growing careers in modern day Hollywood. And, and they come to a crossroads in their relationship. And there's this crucial scene, turning point of the movie, on, on a park bench where they come face to face with a single question. They ask each other, will we choose our careers Or will we choose love? Will we stay together or pursue our dreams? Which one comes first? And of course, I'm not going to tell you which one they chose and spoil it for you, right? But I can tell you what every person who has seen it is rooting for. When When you're watching that scene, you are absolutely rooting for them to stay together. You're saying, choose them. Choose the other person, right? Choose love. You're not sitting there saying, you know, hey, lady, blow him off, right? You do you. Go get it, girl, right? You get yours, 
What about that joker? Forget him. And you're not saying to me, hey, man, ditch the chick. Go on tour with your man. Get paid. You know, you're not saying that. No, you want them to love one another first. And the reason you root for that effortlessly and instinctively is because love is at the heart of all reality. The Trinity means what we all know to be true. Love family relationships are more important than success and must come before our work. And it also means this. Are you too busy to connect and build relationships here? If so, if God's put you here, then you're not living Trinitarian life. Second implication, it's this. Diversity, we see, is actually at the heart of God. Why? Because in the Trinity, you've got three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, unique but one. And let me show you how for a moment. The diversity within the person of God is essential for your life and for our church. If you have, for example, in your life or all you focus on is the person of the Father, you'll become too authoritarian, too consumed with the law, right and wrong, too dogmatic, self-righteous. You'll become maybe, probably, a Pharisee, consumed with right and wrong in the law. But if you, on the other hand, if all you have in your life or you focus on is the person of the Spirit, you'll have no boundaries, no one to dig into your life, no one to tell you what to do. Sometimes you'll chase experience forever. You won't be a Pharisee. You'll probably be a mystic. But if all you have in your life or you focus on is the person of the Son of God, you may feel real good, brother, about how God loves you. You are affirmed and free and forgiven, but without the Spirit to compel you, empower you, to send you into all the world, and the Father to define right and wrong for you. You won't be a Pharisee. You won't be a mystic, but you will be the average American churchgoer. Oh. Oh. Hashtag sorry, not sorry there. All right. All right. You know, it's true. But if you have a father who gives boundaries, a son who gives grace, and a spirit that gives power, now you have a dynamic, throbbing, pulsing God who turns you, shapes you into something you can never be on your own without the other two persons. And therefore, our need for the diversity within God shows us our need for diversity within the local church Why? Because, and here's why, diversity shapes us into a more complete picture and portrait of who God is. Uh, When I was growing up in the the church I grew up in, it was, a to quote a song lyric, a whiter shade of pale. (laughs) And I remember thinking, whenever someone from a different ethnic background walked in, I remember wondering, do they know they're the only one here? Now, I'm pretty sure they did. I'm pretty sure they did. Because just like you would know that if you walked into a monoethnic environment that was different than your own. See, the point is if all that you have in your life are relationships of people of the same color, age, ethnic background, interests, you, we will 
falls short of Trinitarian life, which is inherently diverse. Oh, I'm so glad, so glad my children are growing up in a multi-ethnic environment. I didn't have that, like I said. My kids can't imagine not having it. But hear me, we don't pursue ethnic diversity just because it's a nice idea or a good idea or it plays good on the website or it's a nice thing in the media or current or trendy or whatever. We pursue it out and we live it because it's better than good and it's deeper than good. It exists in the very heart of God and therefore in reality. We have to have it. And if you want to know why and how Jesus Christ, when he came to earth, effortlessly, instinctively moved towards people of other races, backgrounds, and ethnicities, it's because he had always been had and been shaped by diversity from forever. And when he became a person like a magnet, like water flows downhill, he went toward it. He had to have it. And we do as well. That's the second implication. Third one, third implication here. <clears throat> Finally, humble service, humble service is the pathway to authentic spirituality. You're going to like this one. Okay. I hope. When Jesus prays that prayer, John 17, in front of his disciples, he says, oh God, glorify me. Is he just saying, hey God, give me a big platform, one million likes on social media. What does that mean? No. He says, glorify me. Why? That I may glorify you. He's showing you how his life has always been. He's saying, God, make me bigger so that in the end I can make you bigger. He's showing you inside the Trinity is mutual, permanent, others-oriented service. Early on in my marriage, actually I should say, our marriage, because when you're married, it's never just your marriage. Husbands, it's always our marriage, right? <clears throat> you share it, by the way. Uh, free marriage tip for you. There's more to come. Uh, after Carrie and I had been married about three years, we had our first, first child, first boy, uh, and it was great, but about four months later, she got pregnant again. Yeah. And uh, in the middle of all that time, I knew I was instinctively, I was a good husband, right? Because I've been married three years, total expert level. Uh, I've achieved and in the middle of my expertness. We had the baby and she got pregnant again. And of course, my expectation of service remained at an all-time high, right? I'd let her take care of the baby at night because I needed my rest because my work is really important as a campus missionary at UT working with college students. So I'd make sure I got a good night's rest. I'd come home from campus expecting, you know, dinner and a clean house because those things just magically appear on their own, as you all know. Anyway, I remember one night I, I got home from work and Carrie had made dinner and I uh, ate dinner and, uh, and I, we finished and I sat down on the sofa to recover from eating dinner with, uh, you know, with the magazine, leaving her to do the dishes again. Now, because you all are really smart people here, you can tell this is not going to end well for me. And it didn't that night. She asked, why don't you ever do the dishes? Yeah. I said, I said, I do do the dishes. I never tell you no. Whenever you ask me, I always do them. But that's the thing she said. I'm always having to ask you to do the dishes. You never look to me or ask me if you can help me or what you can do for me. I mean, what's that thing you're always telling the students, Morgan? Mm, see the need and take the lead. Well, you're not seeing the need or taking the lead. Why don't you start being a leader in your own home? Oh, She was right. 
like she always is, right? Like she always is. I'm sorry. <laughs> I thought the way <laughs> to greatness was up. The Trinity shows us the pathway goes down. Is humble service how your relationships with other people work? Is it how your relationship with this church works? Do you come here looking for what you can get out of a church or what you can maybe just maybe give to others? See, humble service is the pathway to authentic spirituality. Good sermons and nice lights and sound are not at the heart of the Trinity. Humble service is. What's Jesus doing in this passage? He's modeling covenant love, faithfulness, friendship all the way to the end. But how could he do it? As we see here, it's because it's what he had always done. It's just who God is. And now, final question emerges, I hope you've been asking, because I suggested it to you 20 minutes ago. (sighs) Number three, how can we do the same? If you'll remember, I said earlier that it looked like Jesus was beginning to do this whole Passover thing, all special meal, wonky, sacred meal thing, weird, right? And in a way that's true, but in a way that's not complete because he's about to do something else here that takes this whole sacred meal off script, but writes a new one. And let me set it up for you. At every Passover meal, every single one, there was someone there called the presider. And the job of the presider was to say the sacred words that had been said in the same way for over a thousand years to remind the people of the freedom that God had given them when he rescued them from slavery. And when the Jews were in slavery in Egypt, God, we see in the book of Exodus, broke the back of the, their oppressor, uh, the Pharaoh of Egypt, by visiting justice on Pharaoh and the people for systematically abusing, exploiting, and profiting off of forced slave labor. And justice, God brought in, in a unique way, justice came down upon and through the death of the firstborn son in every family. Now, this wasn't a random thing that they would have scratched their head and wondered what it meant because in that day, in the ancient Near East, the firstborn son was the symbol of the family. The firstborn son, not daughter, but son represented all the family's, yes, hopes and dreams, but at the same time, the firstborn son represented the debt that the family owed to society and to the gods. And so God here is speaking in a language they can understand and saying, I am calling in the debt. You owe these people over here and that you owe me for how you have treated them. And by putting to death the firstborn son in every household in Egypt at one time, one night, God was saying to all mankind, because I love the world so much, I'm going to judge it. And right justice must be done for these slaves to go free. And by the way, you can't have it both ways. If you want a God of love who frees the slave, you've got to have a God of justice who comes and judges wickedness and unrighteousness. See, a God who won't free, can't free, isn't loving, but a God who won't judge isn't just, right? Because just as justice without love at the core is really revenge, Love without justice at the core is really cowardice. And God's saying, I'm not in the revenge business and I'm not a coward. All right, through the death of the firstborn son in every family, I am calling in the debt you owe these people, one another, 
and me. Oh, but there was a way out of judgment that night because if a family sacrificed a lamb and put the blood of that lamb over the doorpost of their house, judgment would pass over that house. In other words, on that night in Egypt, that one night there would either be a dead lamb or a dead son. Someone was going to pay for every person's sin because, you know, this real wrongdoing requires real payment. And when that real judgment came down, Pharaoh's back was broken and the slaves went free. Flash forward over a thousand years of the upper room. The job of Jesus, the job of the presider that night was to tell that story and to take the unleavened bread, the flat bread that couldn't be baked because the slaves were being freed in a hurry. And his job was to take the bread and to say these words. He was to say this bread, take it and eat it. This is the bread of our affliction. Oh, but Jesus doesn't do that. It says he took it and broke it and he said, take and eat. This is, pause, pause, wait for it. This is my body. He's beginning to write a new story, a new script. And it gets even stranger when it comes to the cup of wine. He takes it and says this, drink from it all of you, my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whew, what's he saying? He's saying that something greater than the Exodus is about to happen. What the Exodus could only sort of paint a portrait of at one time. He's saying, I am going to make possible for every life, every part of humanity, every tribe and tongue and nation and the people, not just of Moses, but the children of Adam are about to get something better than even Moses could have seen. Because if you'll notice here, Jesus only, he only picks up cup and bread, only bread and wine. But where's the lamb? Oh, there's never a reference to any lamb at this Passover. It's the most central, the most important, crucial part of the meal. Where is the lamb? And of course, the answer is the lamb. Oh, the lamb wasn't on the table. Because there was a lamb at the table that night. Jesus is saying, I am the lamb who's come not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment to allow humanity to go free. Oh, you said that's a nice story for Christians. No, no. Look at the Exodus story. That night, God called everyone in the land to account. He did not differentiate between Jew and Egyptian. The only thing that let anyone in all the land go free was if they had the blood of the Passover lamb in their home and house. This isn't a story for Christians. It's a story for humanity, for people, for the whole world. See, in this moment, Jesus is saying, I am all of this. I am the ultimate firstborn son that God is calling into account, not for my sin, but for yours. He's saying, if your faith is in me, you don't get called to account. I do and I will. He's saying, I'm the new covenant made not through an animal's blood, but through my own, through my own, that you can know forever that God is both just and loving. He's saying the only thing that can spare humanity from the wrath of God is by taking my body and blood, Jesus' body and blood, on the inside, into the very center of who they are. And church, if you'll do that, if we'll do that, 
Now you begin to become free. Now the judgment passes over and we begin to be able to live the kind of lives we always wanted to live all along that Jesus shows us is possible within the Trinity. Diverse, loving, faithful, sacrificial, service-oriented, no matter what. What's Jesus doing here? Modeling covenant love, faithfulness all the way to the end. How could he do it? It's because he had always done it. How can we do the same? It's through the power of the new exodus. Have you received that today? Have you eaten like this with Jesus? Even if you are, we all have been at some, some way and some time, even if we're a Judas today. Even if we betrayed Jesus, sold him out for money or career, for pleasure, or for our own self. Jesus is saying, you can have this. Do you want it? Hmm? Jesus would say to you today, it's whatever you say. It's whatever you want. You tell me.